Welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. I'm Jordan Guess. And I'm Kendall Y. Hello, Kendall. We're back Hello. to our regularly scheduled time. We're recording today on Thursday, September 8th at 9.40 a.m. Eastern time. So we're back. We're back on that. I know we've well, been jumping around. We are back on schedule, but you are still in Europe. Still in Europe. So this morning I uh, had to negotiate with the ECB on the interest rate hike. So yeah. but that's uh, why you're, that's why you're there, right? They they're like Jordan, <laughs> we, we need we need you here to <laughs> negotiate our central bank policy. Yeah. Actually, yeah, they reached out a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, uh there's a lot of members at the ECB who are big fans of the show. So shout out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I bet they would love this show. This is definitely a show for them. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, we are. Um, I'm in Amsterdam today. Been in, got in Amsterdam yesterday from London. Um, took the channel, which is the channel tunnel, but they call it the channel for short. And it essentially goes under the ocean, under the channel, I guess, from England we actually stopped in Belgium and Brussels and then it went all the way to Amsterdam. So that was kind of cool. And then, yeah, Amsterdam's been, uh, been really su- like surprisingly pleasant. I didn't really know what to think of, um, our time here. So because the main reason we're here is just to board a river cruise, which we just did. Um, we just got into our room about 35 minutes ago or so. So Yeah. The journey continues. Mm. Very cool. So, yeah. Well, what well, we're uh, exactly, I think, a week out from the long-awaited ETH merge sitting here on September 8th. My understanding is that it's supposed to, the two, um, what do you call them? The two blockchains are supposed to merge together on the 15th all goes according to plan so that's right your understanding yeah i don't think it's it's not like a give a dedicated time it's at a dedicated block number which Mm. is projected to be at september 15th i think it's projected to be like in the middle of the night too or like early in the morning maybe i don't know okay well, I took some time this morning and read through, I don't know if anybody, I know you you uh, work at CoinMetrics, so I'm sure you are a uh, avid reader of the state of the network. Um, mm-hmm. Indeed. But in the, yeah, in their last issue, they, um, what do they call this thing? Uh, they pretty much had a download called Mapping Out the Merge um, by several people over at CoinMetrics. So shout out to that team they really it was actually a really um good report so helped a uh a predominantly bitcoin guy understand a lot of what's going on with the merge and um what the different like economic uh implications might be and so uh, oh yeah. yeah i thought we might just, shout out we might shout just out walk to, through there right <laughs> shout out to the coin metrics team this is uh yeah they do really good work. This is a really good, really good report. Yeah. So have you had a chance to sift through it a little bit or? I have, yeah. Sure they actually, in the- you know, this okay. is a little, in, little insider baseball for you, but they post this before to the internal team before they post it to everybody else. So I read it like two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So you've known, you've known all this forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. And then, yeah, I mean, other than that, like there's still some stuff going on in the world. But yeah, we haven't talked about the ETH merge in I think a couple weeks. We've hinted at it a few times, but I think taking an episode to dedicate um, a week out, what pretty much explaining it, talking through what some of the implications might be. And um, yeah, I mean, I know everyone cares about price action, but there's sounds like there's a lot of underlying technology that is going to be shifting around and incentives are going to be changing quite a bit. So, um, totally, totally. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of tech to talk through. I'm not like an expert by any means, but we're going to 
have fun with it. I do want to make a, a comment up front here, which is it'd be really interesting to see what happens to the price action in the short term. Like, cause I think you could make a credible argument that like they're choosing like one of the worst possible times in the economic, like the financial environment to do this. Yeah. Global, global financial markets. Yeah. <laughs> like this is like the worst economic environment since 2008 and they're doing it like right at the start of it. But who knows? I mean, the market's yeah, going to do I what mean, the market the does. Like it doesn't, you know, as a technologist, you it's kind of a fool's errand to try and time the market. Right. Well, I think the other thing that I learned from reading this, um, which was one of my biggest fears to your point of we're in a really just um, unstable time, it feels like in all kinds of markets. And so, you know, my biggest fear was, OK, they they uh, do the merge and then the people who have had their ETH um, staked would not would then just liquidate to go back to whatever their local currency is because they're scared. Um not everyone, but maybe a large percentage of people. Um, but based on what I read, and maybe we start here, uh, my understanding is even after the merge, you're still not going to be able to um, unstake your ETH. There needs to be a protocol, a new, um, whatever they call it, you know, a new like update or whatever it, that's supposed to happen in something called Shanghai, where um, like Shanghai will be the name of the upgrade that will actually allow people to take their staked ETH out and sell it and convert it. So I can point you to which page I saw that. I'm, on, actually, but I'm looking at that it right was now. Something I learned. Yeah, page 19. Um, <clears throat> okay. That's right. Yeah. So they currently don't have a withdrawal mechanism programmed into the into the protocol yet so and they made the i've heard discussions around this on crypto twitter which is a a, a hellscape these days <laughs> uh, i'm just kidding um but uh they, they there's the claim that was made which is that there was a uh, too much complexity to they didn't want to like bundle too much complexity into a single change and so they've held off on on programming that i mean the cynically the reason is that they don't want people doing ex exactly what you just said which is liquidating their coins immediately after the yeah. merge but um i want to make one comment too because in the past i've been in the past i've made a comment several times which is that you know there isn't like a ton of technical work here like most of what's going on is political I've, I've sort of developed that narrative in the past but i want to walk that back a little bit because first off i was speaking naively i'm not like a ethereum client developer so how would i even know um but um i i am aware that like the ethereum client code base at least the main one is like several hundred thousand lines of code which is a very large uh code base so yep. there is like a there is a, a pretty significant degree of of complexity in this thing i would argue it's overly yep. complex but yeah so let's just lay it out real quick just to kind of try to dumb this down um as as best we can so um and maybe I'll just kind of talk through a summary and you you jump in where you see fit. But essentially, mm -hmm. for the last since the late 2020, there have been two chains, two blockchains running in parallel. OK, so there's the main net, right, which is the one that everyone is accustomed to using. Um, is it just called the main net, the Ethereum main net? And then there's I the beacon. I think so. Yeah. OK um so essentially the once the merge happens everything will go to the 
um, beacon chain. And that is the consensus la- layer. Well, whereas yeah, the existing let me, one right now me, is like the execution layer, right? Yeah, let me jump in. So yeah, there, <clears throat> I don't fully understand it. So I'm sort of being a little hand wavy here. But <clears throat> yeah, so to your point, since 2020, let's actually, uh, let's do it this way. So the end state here of Ethereum after the merge is actually, it's sort of like two, it's actually two chains that sort of run in parallel with each other. And there's what's called the beacon chain, or sorry, sorry, hold on. I don't even know if you would call them two chains. They actually call them layers. So there's the consensus okay. layer, there's the consensus layer, and then there's the execution layer. And I think they they do roughly what they sound like, which is like the execution layer is sort of like if you need to do any sort of compute, like smart contracting requires compute. So you have to uh, ask the network to execute a smart contract. Or if you want to like send a new transaction, I think you send it to the execution layer first. And then the consensus layer is where like the network, I think the way I would describe the consensus layer is like where the network um, reaches agreement on like what the current state of, of the Ethereum network is. So that's yeah. the so after the merge, there's two there's those two layers: consensus layer, execution layer. Um, so prior to the merge, historically, Ethereum's always just been like one, one chain, one layer, one network. And it's called the mainnet, which is what you said earlier. And um, but in 2020, December 2020, they launched what is called the Beacon Chain. And the beacon chain is functionally the consensus layer, um, but it was—it's like it's been around since 2020, such that users can actually begin to stake their coins in the consensus layer, and um, they're like already providing security for for that for the consensus layer, even though the consensus layer isn't currently like activated into the mainnet. Yeah. And and when you say consensus, like that is the whole point of this proof of stake switch is to change how consensus is come to, right? Currently, as as we're recording this podcast, consensus in a proof of work is pretty much through energy spent, whereas consensus Am I thinking about that right? Then consensus yes. in POS will switch to the validators essentially using their staked ETH to vote and come to a consensus on what is the true chain. Yeah, that's totally correct. You're thinking about that entirely correctly. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I, I think after the migration of proof of stake, there there's a number of like complexities in terms of like the way validation works, um, but. I think the it's I can de- describe like the night that the sort of surface level just uh system, which is that you move from having miners, which miners execute um, computation which requires energy, and then well, let me put it this way actually. Proof of work miners write the blocks. They're the ones who like create the actual blocks and send them out to the network to be. Uh, agreed upon but in proof of stake miners get replaced with validators and validators are the ones who then create the blocks Um, and of course the key differentiator being proof of work the input is uh, energy and then proof of stake the input is capital yep so but there's also some at some levels it's it's both capital both of them are kind of capital intensive, right? That's right. That's right. So there, um, you know, with proof of work, you have to deploy capital to uh, buy machines, buy uh, like facilities, and then also buy energy. So you're deploying capital in that regards too. Um, but but there is a sort of under under the surface, there is quite a bit of difference. The, the way that 
I think about this, which is probably naive and like, there's probably a lot more to it than, than just this, but um, like with proof of work, there's sort of like, there's sort of high friction in the system. So like, if I want to be a proof of work miner, there's like a whole list of operational things I have to do. I have to sit down and like, okay, I got to figure out how I'm going to, where am I going to buy the machine? Where am I going to buy the energy? Can I negotiate these things? What about the facilities? What happens if I want to liquidate? What happens if I want to sell? There's like a whole skew of operational frictions. With proof of stake, you don't have any of that. And with proof of stake, it's functionally, you're doing everything with just keystrokes. So you can, um, you can, like the capital movements are much more uh, dynamic and they're much more volatile actually. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. So uh, let me back up actually, because I just want to really harp on this point. Like if, if a, if a proof of work miner wants to exit their position, then they have to go to the marketplace and find a buyer that is willing to take on all of the operational burdens of running a proof of work facility. If a proof of stake validator wants to exit their position, all they have to do is go to the market order book and click sell. Right. So in that regards, like you, I would expect proof of stake systems to be inherently more volatile because you're going to, because there's, there's just less friction involved. And so people are going to be entering and exiting the system uh, much more frequently because it's just it's way more convenient, right? Like it's like super easy to just go to the, go to Coinbase and sell your position. Um, yeah. But uh, that makes sense. But there, so, but there is a nuance here, which is that the proof of stake system can enact uh, requirements for validation. And in this, in this, in the, in the report, which of course, we will link the report in the show notes. Uh, in the report, they talk about how 32 ETH is the requirement to to start validating. Um, and there's you can have other requirements too, which is like if you start validating, you have to validate for X amount of time. You can't just like willy nilly come in and out of the system. Um, so my point is, I don't know. Okay. I don't know the details on like the specific requirements, but my point is, is that the network can impose a set of requirements in the proof of stake system such that you make that sort of liquidation events uh, more difficult or uh, you're sort of, you're sort of like synthetically adding friction to the process I just described, which is like liquidating your assets. Um, And I'll say one more thing and then I'm going to stop. But the, the there is a problem to that which is that <clears throat> markets always find a way to be to to solve those like you can impose those restrictions on the network level but then what happens is you're going to have uh sort of synthetic derivatives that that uh that emerge out of that and so you'll have things like so the Lido network, which hosts uh, a token called Staked ETH, right? S-T-E-T-H, Steeth, mm-hmm. um, is the perfect example of this. Yeah. So like, sure, there are restrictions on the underlying network that I can't you know, move capital in and out of or whatever the requirements are, whatever the restrictions are. But I can just go to the synthetic and and use the synthetic Right. So, so like effectively it's all a financialization game, which there are pros and there are cons too. Yeah. 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 Let's save Lido for a little bit. Cause I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, on the part where they're talking about like the, what are these things called? The, um, liquid staking solution stuff where like big players are coming in. And, um, well, we can also, we can go there if you want already, pretty much the two things that I wanted to try to hit on at some point are, is that risk, that risk of essentially like a big 
organization, whether it's like something like a Lido or something like Coinbase being able to come in and have so much staked that it's actually posing a threat to um, the network. Because essentially in POS, you can, if you have a the most ETH staked, you uh, become a threat potentially because you can, you have more control, right? Do you want That's to right. get into that or the other the other piece, the other piece that I wanted to hit on is the short term. You mentioned the short term price action and based on my read and it sounds like in the short term, it's Ethereum is actually going to be quite deflationary, uh, assuming like transaction, you know, the fees or whatever stay roughly where they've been at. Um, it seems like the new ETH that's minted every day and every year is going to be slashed by like, I mean, divided by like almost 10, it seemed like. Um, so do you have any outlook on short term trying to capture if there's a lot less ETH in circulation because of the minted, the newly minted ETH is just going down by such a large, um, you know, just such a large uh, multiple. Like, do you think it's a good investment potentially in the short term to see us you know, pretty much see a spike in the price. Okay, yeah. So we can start there and then we can go. And then if you want to go to the risk of uh, the staking contracts, we can go there next. Yeah, centralization next. Um, yeah, so, so there's a different supply dynamic in after the merge, um, which like, I think it's important to like discern that a monetary policy is distinct from a, a consensus agreement. So like the merge is kind of doing both at the same time. It's changing the monetary policy and it's also changing the consensus uh, algorithm. Um, I just think it's important to to discern those two because you will, <clears throat> you know, like as a sales pitch, you can say the merge will make uh, ETH deflationary. And, you know, on a more technical level, I would say the update that is occurring at the merge is changing the monetary policy. So, like, it's not, it's different from the consensus agreement. Um, yeah, so. Uh, Which it should be mentioned really quick as I was reading. I didn't know this either. This something else I learned was essentially, you know, there's there's not a. um written in the code um pretty much how the new newly minted ethereum or eth tokens come about right at the beginning it was five ETH. then at some point they changed to three then most recently um it was two like i think right now it's two two eth every um two eth is it every like 12 seconds or something like that? It's some, some amount of blo whatever the block time is. Um, but essentially how that's a lot different from Bitcoin um, is that you know exactly how many new Bitcoin are going to be minted um, during each block. Um, whereas it seems one of my biggest issues with Ethereum has always been the new, the, the inflationary newly minted ones, right? It's like, you don't exactly know 10 years out what that's going to look like because they can just change it. Yeah. So the new, the new issuance algorithm is not fixed to your point. There is like, um, yeah, it's dynamic now. There's some sort of, yeah, there's some sort of like function, which is based off of like, I think it's probably based off of the number of validators would be my guess. Yeah. That, yeah, the supply issuance schedule, total amount of ETH that's being staked. Well, the so the volume, this is where it gets a little tricky. the The volume drives the burn rate. So, the with EIP one five five nine, which was introduced last August of you know August twenty twenty one, I guess two Augusts ago now. Well, um. EIP-159 introduced what's known as a burn, like some sort of burn mechanism, which which like the way it works is 
as volume in the network increases beyond a certain degree, the transaction fees will actually be composed of multiple parts. And one of those parts is literally just burning the asset, you know, into the void, getting rid of it basically. Mm-hmm. So so the volume dyna- the 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 volume dynamics drive the burn rate, which is different from the issuance rate, right? Issuance is okay. new sub new supply, burning is burning existing supply. Now you have to in order to understand the the like net net uh, difference in supply, you have to take both into account. Um. So. So yeah, but the it must so it. The the actual like the granular issuance schedule, it looks like is based off of how much ETH is being staked. And yeah. my guess is so I'm trying to figure out if it goes up or down. So the number as the number of validators increase. It looks if you like you look on page thirty one, it says put simply as total ETH stake staked increases total issuance increases but at a decreasing rate total e so, stake increases total issuance increases but at a decreasing rate yeah but i mean it that second sentence where it says with 13.3 million eth currently staked this implies a maximum annual issuance of just over 600,000 ethereum an 88% reduction in yearly ETH issued compared to proof of work today, um, which of this, and then it says this assumes maximum issuance because it assumes all the validators will operate fall- flawlessly, which, you know, they probably won't all operate flawlessly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this, wow, there's so much to, there's so much to think about here from a, from a financial standpoint, the, uh, so yeah. I, what I was trying to get at earlier, which I which I now see, is that the if you actually think about it as a yield, which is not on this page, I don't know if we have a page that shows the yield, but um, as more stakers come online, the um, the yield per stake per validator will decrease, right? Because what that means. Mm-hmm. You can think of the yield as the incentive mechanism for security, right? So if if you want maximum security, then you want to, or think about it this way. If the, num- the number of validators start to drop, then you are losing security assurances. I put that in double quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, and so if, if you are <laughs> if you losing, look, if you're losing- 16 has that. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah, so if you are 17 actually. If you are losing security, then you need to incentivize more validators to come online. And so the yield will actually go up. And so the inverse is also true, right? Which is if you have too many validators, then you need to you need to dampen the yield such that the issuance doesn't get out of control. So you have page 30. Page 30 to your point, that's perfect. Or sorry, 31. Which, by the way, the okay, I see how that works. Um, the uh, total issuance will increase, but at a decreasing rate. Yeah, that decreasing rate is the yield piece. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, on page on seventeen, I think it's saying that the current rate, if you assume the in, the number of validators right now is four hundred sixteen thousand validators, uh, best case annual return would be about four and a half percent. From staking mm. rewards alone, right, for the right, validator. So, and then, yeah, I mean, it, it'll be very interesting to see where that number, that four hundred sixteen thousand, if that goes up in, you know, by the end of the year, or if that actually drops. My question is, how much of the marginal price of ETH? is based off of miners currently selling their coins, right? If if the miners today sell their coins right away, then that means that there's a significant 
downward pressure on the existing ETH price from the miners. And if that's the case, mm-hmm. then after the merge, that will drastically decrease, which would allow the price to run up. Um, but then my I have a follow-up question too, which would be like, what... Uh, so... You know the 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 ETH that is staked is locked away and can't be withdrawn, but can the yield be withdrawn, right? Like, can I can I immediately sell my yield, or is that also is that like reinvested into the existing staked pool? Pretty sure. My understanding would be that that would all not be accessible right now either, because all of that is happening on the layer that's not quite released yet the that's all layer. happening yeah because that's the only layer that is actually where the p you know the pos is actually occurring and so my guess would just be that that stays those rewards just all stay stay locked up if that's but the case I'm, if not, that's the... I'm not for sure about that well yeah like let's just assume that's the case uh, we we don't know, but you know, assuming that's the case, then yeah, I would expect I would expect explosive upward price from from Ethereum because you're basically getting rid of. I mean, you're only going to have from from a market standpoint, not from like the overall network, not from the network supply standpoint, but from the mar- market standpoint, you're 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 a hundred percent deflationary. You're not you're not allowing any selling of the new. Of the new issuance, right? Right. And I don't know. That's interesting. I, gonna, I mean, I was going to try to find one other. There was another piece of this that was like, here we go. So since EIP 1559's launch, let me just make sure. Well, I'll just read it anyways. So since the launch, over 2.6 million ETH have been burnt. This comes out to be uh, 6.7 thousand ETH burnt every day. And then, okay, so with a much higher, you know, 13,500 ETH that are issued daily on average under POW, only 29 days were deflationary in the first year. But what this is getting at is if it comes out to be 6.7 or 6.7 thousand um, ETH that are burnt every day. And then that new issuance goes from 13.5 thousand to, I think the number is like 1.67 or something like that. That would be the rough new ETH per day, 1.67 thousand. Yeah, here it is. Um, essentially, there will be a daily issuance rate of about 1.67 thousand ETH. I mean, that would be negative. That would be really deflationary, assuming that the burn the burn continues at that rate. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're only making but... 1.67 thousand, but we're burning 6.7 thousand. I mean, that's quite a, that's quite a decrease. Oh, for sure. But I would say too, I don't know if the Ethereum network is seeing the level of activity right now that it was over the past year or two. You know, yeah. I don't understand <clears throat> There's so much there's so much effort put into the monetary policy and like trying to understand I kind of don't understand at the end of the day, the market finds the neutral value. So it's like these changes, what these changes do is they offer an opportunity to speculators. It's kind of like attracting speculators Mm -hmm. and because eventually the the market it doesn't really matter i'm not sure it even matters if things are inflationary deflationary like what i think what matters is yeah i don't know i think what matters is like where what's the ultimate equilibrium point what's the shelling point of the system which uh so yeah. we can we can segue into you know i hate to be 
bearish here, but I just am, I'm just like continuously cynical on the Ethereum monetary policy. Like I don't understand why they why there's so much effort put into it. Um, but uh, like, so the I thing mean, that the thing that I look for is like, and I know this is like a hotly debated topic, but I look at the Gini coefficient. Are you familiar with the Gini coefficient? I'm not. I don't know if they mention it in this report. They do not. I think I saw the word Gini somewhere in the report. It's uh, spelled G-I-N-I. I don't see it anywhere. So oh. a, Gini, a Gini coefficient is a metric used in economics, which measures the inequality of wealth distribution. So, for example, in the United States, under the US dollar, you have a Gini coefficient, which is trending in the wrong direction, which is to say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So it's like a rate of change, right? Um, yeah. My my issue, the issue I have with the Ethereum monetary policy is that I think that they have disrupted the Gini coefficient for the worse and they should have just left it how it was. Um, and the... The... Um, this this topic is multifaceted because distribution ultimately is a big topic and the distribution in bitcoin is not good because satoshi still has a a large amount of of the coins um but if you think about the the system of ethereum after the merge if you are a person who is capable of validating and collecting yield then you are going to do that with your coins. And and then if you're a person that's not in a position to where they can validate and collect yield, yield on their coins, then you won't. And so that yield is inherently like a forcing function for, for a Gini coefficient, which trends in the wrong direction. And then it's, um, it's worse. And it compounds. Yeah, it does compound. Although you could you could make the claim, which I think is actually credible, which is that you know Bitcoin has the same thing. It's just that the yield goes to the miners. Um, but yeah. okay, so no, so neither here nor there. the The actual issue is EIP one five five nine, and because uh, see, no, it's not just like the the um, it's not just that there's a yield that they could potentially compound, but it's that you're you're forcing users during times of high activity to burn their coins. And so the users are are having a sort of negative yield in that regard. Right. So wait, do that one more time? Yeah. So obviously with so if you think of the start from the beginning the yield for validators is a is a new issuance mm -hmm. which gets which gets awarded to the validators with EIP 159 during times of high activity the users whenever they use the network whenever they transact on the network they are forced to burn part of their coins so um mm -hmm. that's what EIP 1559 does which is during times of high activity part of the overall transaction fee the transaction fee is a composition of multiple parts and part of it is just burning your your coins which is accretive to holders right because yeah. because it it reduces the supply but um right and so from from that point you can think of it as a sort of negative yield for the users so you like you have yeah you have kind of three three types of people in these in these systems you have the users who are getting gaining some sort of value from using the network. Then you have the holders, which are just savers, they're just saving the asset. And then you have like stakers or miners, which are earning a yield from the network. And um, yeah. the combination of like I just you kind of have like this like per, like you're you're making it a liquid instrument 
that can that people can create synthetic assets of so you're increasing the volatility like i said earlier with respect to or so you're increasing volatility because there's not as much operational friction to enter and exit your yield position. And then you take that coupled with this, um, this system, which the system of rewards uh, and punishments with respect to the, the yield coupled with the burning, which will increase the, or will, which will make the Gini coefficient trend in the wrong direction, in my opinion. Sort of all that stuff together, like I, I don't see how that that decreases volatility. All that stuff together seems like to massively increase volatility, and uh, yeah. volatil- volatility is is very is very, ultimately volatility is costly. Okay, well anyway, yeah. Well, I I am curious though, like on because I agree, like I think the whole idea of pretty much income distribution inequality asset distribution inequality like i know it is an issue right but is there i guess is there any network is there any asset out there right now that is doing it better than any other yeah so, yeah i mean and bitcoin does it the best because there is a real energy cost and so the the difference here, okay, so the difference here between proof of work versus proof of stake. In proof of work, you have bills which have to be paid. And so if the asset tanks, if the asset tanks, you functionally get margin called. You have to exit your position, otherwise you become insolvent. And so you there's a requirement to pay your bills. And so with that respect, um, the, the miners in proof of work system are oftentimes forced sellers, which is good for distribution. Yeah. It's good for distribution. This is different than proof of stake where you don't have any margin call forcing function. And so sure that yeah. the, the asset could tank, but you're not, you don't become a forced seller. You can just sit tight for a few years and hope to make it back. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Cause I think that is at root of so many issues like on a global societal level you know people just feeling like they're getting gypped from the from the very beginning you know what i'm saying totally it's leading to a lot of populist you know strongman government type and you're kind of seeing it all over the place right where people are just like clamoring for for anybody who's going to try to help them out right and it's the root of it is like this feeling of can't get ahead kind of thing. And it used to be obviously prevalent all around the world. Now it seems like it's very much creeping into the American way of thinking as well of like, I, I could work really hard and still not achieve the wealth of, you know, previous generations. So all that to say, it's like well, a real issue that needs to be solved, but it's, also a lot of ways a storyline that kind of like you get people to believe it and then they manifest it and make it happen almost you know what i'm saying like yeah well, i don't know how you sold the, the american dream distribution problem that's exactly right when i think of actually i was just thinking the american dream when you were when you were rifting a second ago like ultimately yeah, i think I'm- i think the way that you solve wealth distribution is through incentivizing like hard work like you have to, you have to incentivize people proof that like, work. yeah, you have to, you have to reward the, the work through, through some sort of like proof of work. Yeah. I do think, I do think that's the way it's solved. But to your point, I do think that, oh boy, I don't mean to get too cynical here. I do think that as a guy who I follow financial markets pretty religiously, and I do think that the number one problem in the world is exactly this. I do think it's that people are just not not happy with the wealth distribution. You know, what's it's a weird thing with culture that it actually doesn't the majority of people, it doesn't matter if their quality of life is really good because most people play status games. And so you can give them all mm-hmm. these these great things in life, you know, iPhones and electric cars and you can give them great quality of life, you know, sort of 
with uh, on an absolute basis. But most people think on relative terms. Mm-hmm. They think of like, well, what's my neighbor got, right? Or what's my what does my cousin have? Right. And uh, so yeah, yeah. Well, they're not thinking in they're if you thought in relative terms, but you were comparing to fifty years ago, you know, yeah, relatively life is, you know, your people are richer than like the kings of a hundred two years two hundred years ago, you know. But yeah, people definitely think of, well, what's my wealth look like compared to somebody in my age group with college degree, if I have a college degree or whatever, right? Um, And then I think of another huge piece of it that there's no solving this, but people used to not know as much about other people as they do now, you know? And so I think, you know what I'm saying? Like people used to not really understand the level of luxury that people in the upper class enjoyed and now even just you know take instagram you know you know the level or some some of the level of luxury that like kanye west enjoys or you know jerry seinfeld or somebody like that right whereas yeah 20 years ago you're like yeah yeah they probably have it pretty good but you didn't really know how good they had it (laughs) so and you and you kind of feel like you you got you're getting gypped because um, you know, you're like, well, I go, I go to work every day and, um, but my life is a lot different or whatever, however you want to frame it. Right. So yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> okay. Well, there's, anyway. there's no fixing that, but <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, genie coefficient, you know, look it up people. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's big. Um, well, let's talk about there there's some risks that came to mind with the whole with the whole merge um i i wanted to just kind of get your thoughts real quick on first the censorship risk is there any and we can i'll i'll name these off and let you kind of um go at it all at once but like does the proof of stake um does it increase anything to do with the censorship risk and then the other big piece was, yeah, the risk of like big entities moving in, buying up a bunch of ETH, staking it, and then trying to attack the network. Is that is that a larger risk than some, you know, more proof of work, uh, you know, security protocol? Those are the yeah. those are really the two like risks that I wanted to kind of pick your brain about. Yeah, yeah. So there's sort of two two things i want to highlight here there's like first is like the nation state that like type of attack which is like sort of this like gigabrain you know libertarian dream type of conversation um that's one thing and then um and the other thing is like more like pragmatically operationally um yeah do like when you think of like will people follow the ofac sanctions requirements um that's that's like it's that's like a slightly different conversation so let's take both of those okay. so the sort of gigabrain libertarian dream conversation you can what's going on in europe right now is the perfect explanation to why proof of work is the only uh, consensus agreement that can that's that's able to withstand nation state attacks. So, obviously, Europe going through an energy crisis. You were seeing how it's there's no way for countries to print energy. You can't print energy. In order to get energy, it, re- <laughs> it requires work. <laughs> By the way, work mm-hmm. in in the physics. If I'm think going back to my physics days, work is energy over time. That's a it's a physics word actually. Mm-hmm. That's like what a kilowatt is. Kilowatt. You ever heard kilowatt hour? A kilo like a watt. A watt is a a unit of energy over time. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, inter- uh, countries can't print energy and so if you wanted to attack the bitcoin network you would be forced to burn a bunch of energy if you want to attack the a proof of stake network 
you can do it at a keystroke, right? You just have to print a bunch of money, go into the order book, buy up the capital. I don't know. I mean, that conversation is like mm-hmm. somewhat, somewhat theoretical, and I don't know how valuable it really is at the end of the day, frankly. Like, I think there's a compelling argument that none of that matters at all because ultimately the market is what determines the uh the chain like but you could make an argument with even with that which is that the the market will will select a truly neutral asset which a neutral reserve asset with like gold or like bitcoin um but yeah. anyway i don't know i mean it definitely that- lends itself to a much more centralized um you know setup right because well, there was something they were getting I mean, into is like it's much more difficult. Even right now at these low ETH prices, in order to become a validator, if you wanted to go at it solo, right? I know there's pools and all that kind of stuff, but if you wanted to just become a validator yourself, you'd have to, it's like fifty thousand dollars to buy up thirty-two ETH at fifteen or sixteen hundred dollars. I can't remember which one I multiplied by, but I mean that's no. I mean, that's a pretty big threshold for, you know, even people who are doing okay. So I, I totally know. agree. I totally agree. The, um, the centralization risks are significantly higher. I think that, uh, yeah, I think there's two ways to view this. There's sort of like the theoretical ideological view, which is like, yes, it's more centralized, but then like, Second way is like, does that even matter? Like, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if it matters. I go back to, I think I literally said this in like our first episode, which is like my three buckets of decentralized technology, right? The first one is Bitcoin. The second one is financial blockchains. And then the third one is non-blockchain crypto. That second bucket of like financialized blockchains I think it's like this the centralization threshold for that is significantly different than the centralization threshold for Bitcoin. Like I think Solana is proof is proof of my argument here, the success of Solana, which is that like these chains, you know, pr- this I'm talking I'm speaking practically here, right? These chains don't require a high degree of decentralization in order to uh, achieve their vision. Like, so I work at a, a data firm that a crypto data firm, and I can tell you that there is like a handful of somewhat significant blockchains. I'm not going to name names, but they're, but they are somewhat significant that like are basically kept alive by like, <laughs> five data companies like us like we are the only ones that run nodes it's not like you know joe blow in his garage is running a node and yet and my point is is that those networks are still alive and they're still actively you know you know processing activity so yeah, yeah so like th- this is like my point is that like i actually th- i don't know if i talked about this last week i kind of forgot forget who I have conversations with but basically I think that basically I think that Ethereum is like the the true fintech I think I think you had like this like generation of fintech from like 2010 to 2020 which was like Venmo Cash App PayPal which was like had the word fintech but like that word was basically just to make the stock price go higher it was like not really there wasn't any like fundamental value there like basically it was just like a pretty face on an existing system if you want to Mm -hmm. if you want to truly revolutionize finance you have to it's actually more of a political game you have to change the rules and i think that's like sort of what this like bucket number two is doing which i think which i think ethereum is a part of and it's like, it's the true fintech. That's the way I see it. So, yeah, I don't know where where, where I don't remember what got us on this route, but 
Oh, the centralization. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. Well, the centralization risk, and then and then the other big one was the uh, censorship risk. I mean, there was one piece in here that made me think: is that is that same the same as proof of work? Here, I'll read it. So, um, like the the validator has the power to decide which transactions will be included. Um, a key difference is that once a validator has broadcast a block, only other validators need to look at its content and attest to it. If all goes well, the validator who proposed the block is given a reward. Um, I guess my main my main question would be: Are they able to exclude transactions? Okay, there is. Or is it more just an ordering of like which ones come first? So they they can do both, and and by the way, this this dynamic exists in proof of work as well. The block creators, okay. the, the 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 entities that have the authority to build blocks, have the authority to build them in whatever way they seem fit. That's that's really where the um that's the that's the detailed spot where all of the political concerns exist. That's where the incentive exists. Um, and so Miles Sutter, which who is a he works at Block. I don't know if Cash App or something. He's one of the high ups at Block with Jack Dorsey. He actually had a has been okay. tweeting about this quite frequently. There is there is a fundamental difference with respect to censorship, but he, with the, within the scope of this discussion between proof of work and proof of stake. And here's what it is: with proof of work, um, a miner can can create a block and add it to the blockchain, and then it gets it gets accepted by the network, and then subsequent miners build on top of that block, but they don't they don't build the previous block right they just that's the current chain tip and because of incentive mechanisms that miner should build on that that block because if they were to build a different block then or they would if they were to build up upon the previous block then they would there would be a risk of a chain split and they may ultimately lose that battle and then all of that work they put in would be thrown away so there's a natural incentive yeah. to to just keep keep building on the on the same blockchain, and and by no means does does any previous blocks are they have to, are they in any way validating that the previous block is like uh, compliant with with laws like that is not their property they didn't create that block that's somebody else. Okay, there's like a nuance here. It's very difficult to see, but with proof of stake. With proof of stake, you, you, it, it, in order for a block to be created, it requires attestations from other validators. So, if I'm a validator, I build a block and then I basically um, distribute that out to other validators and say, "Hey, can you guys all attest that this is a valid block?" So there is a fundamentally there's a there's a legal difference here, which is that. Other validators have to attest to the same block. So if that block mm. in includes a uh, an, a non-compliant OFAC transaction, such as a tornado, tornado cash transaction, then, for example, let's say the, the Coinbase validator cannot attest to that block. They can't say that that is a valid block because they have to be compliant with the laws, right? So, yeah. so, um, so yeah, it's kind of difficult. You may want to that risk alone for me is like, because I, I tell people a lot now, the biggest, the biggest reason I'm a Bitcoiner is because of the resistance and censorship. Um, so that's yeah, my whole, th that's my whole that, thesis here. That's my whole thesis here, which is that like, I think that a the longer that, the Ethereum community holds on to holds on to that idea, which is that they are supposed to be censorship resistant. The more market share they will lose. They need to just go full. They need to retake the offensive and be like, "Look, this is not a censorship resistant thing. We're not here to do that. We're here to basically be a fintech." If they can do that, 
I think that they will be more successful. To your point, you're you're not that's yeah. not what you're interested in. You you personally are interested in a censorship resistant technology. And so so yeah, you just won't be like Ethereum won't interest you. But I would say that there are there's a huge market to be made for people who don't care about the censorship resistance. Yeah, which there's there are I mean it's the majority, I would say. I mean there's the there's those people it, pretty much if they went down that path and they said we're not we don't really care about censorship um just pretty much get in line with whatever is um compliant at the time right and then the other piece is i think with them switching to um proof of stake they're going to be able to look at um everyone and say look we we're saving the environment we're helping end climate change and so essentially if they go with those pretty much the narrative of like we are in line with um compl- you know pretty much all the compliance type stuff and then also we're trying to in- save the planet i think that plays really well for mainstream more mainstream like institutions mainstream uh investors if they were to go with those narratives so it does it does but so okay this is my i'm putting my investor cap on here my investor cap says i agree with that but the total total addressable market of that is much smaller than the total addressable market of a digital neutral reserve asset i think that becoming a a truly neutral reserve asset akin to gold which is what bitcoin is trying to do is like that is the that's the ultimate boss that's like the last boss that you face you know, whenever you're playing a video game. Yeah. And that's extremely difficult to do. Frankly, Bitcoin may not even be able to do it. We that is to be determined. I think it probably will, but to be determined. Um, so the the total addressable market for that I think is much more significant than the total addressable market for this sort of like fintech solution. The problem with the fintech solution is that you get into a realm of competition. And so then you just have like it's sort of like this race to the bottom, which is what I've been harping at for a long time. Um, yeah. So like, it, it, ultimately, I'm quite bullish on the Ethereum network's utility to humanity. It's like, I think it's going to do a lot of really, really great things for for, for human civilization. The ETH, the asset, is where I take <laughs> issue. And like that, you know, I think that 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 is so contrarian to so many people in this space because because everybody's very tribal about their asset. So it's like, how can you be bullish on the utility that it provides to the world, but be bearish on the asset? Right. It's very contrarian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think censorship has got to be first and foremost especially when you start talking about contracts it's one thing to like not allow transactions to go through it's another thing to like void contracts because um the person violates something or you know i'm saying like pretty much we don't like what that person believes so we're going to not let this contract go through i mean if we're talking about you know pretty much transfers of property upon death and that's written into a smart contract, things like that. I mean, confiscating wealth, uh, like to me, that just gets into really scary territory. And so I just think, yeah, it, uh, I just it, think it, censorship it, has to get pushed yeah, to the very top. But I would say that there are sufficient, there are sufficient points of leverage, like, there are sufficient mechanisms in the network such that like that political discussion has value in and of itself, but ultimately censorship resistance is not a, a defining feature. See, if I'm putting myself in the Ethereum, like if I'm going to be bullish on ETH the asset, the, the hard reality that I have to face is that if censorship resistant is what I'm going for, then that means that I'm going after the same prize that Bitcoin is going for. I'm trying to beat Bitcoin. Yeah. 
I'm trying to be digital gold. I'm trying to be a neutral reserve asset. And the sobering reality to that is the monetary policy of ETH is so effed up. And they every single time they change that monetary policy, they reset their clock. They go back to zero. And so it's not yeah. like it's not like ETH, the neutral reserve asset, has six uh six or seven years behind it now. It now has zero, whereas Bitcoin has like, you know, 12 or 13. So that it's like you're you're just continuously shooting yourself in the foot. And so at some point you just gotta be like, look, that's not what we're going after anymore. Like what we're going after is something very different. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, I mean, to wrap to wrap it up, I would say that that is because any decision you make in this polarized world that we live in, you might make thirty or forty percent of people happy in your community, right? And you piss off the other sixty percent, roughly, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a, it it's much easier if you can always just point to it and say, well, the code is the same. The code has been the same. And the only way we're going to change the protocol is if everyone or a vast, vast, vast majority of people say, oh, of course we should. Almost like making a constitutional amendment, you know, totally <laughs> very similar totally. to that. Like Bitcoin's code reminds me a lot of the Constitution, which I know pisses some people off. They're like, well, it's so old. We should change it, blah, blah, blah. Well, if, if there's enough support, there are ways to change it. Um, so anyways, but I, I do need to wrap up. So, but this has been good. I've, uh, I've learned a lot of, uh, learned a lot of, a lot more stuff. So even then I did reading the thing, I would encourage everyone to go give it a read. It might take like 40 minutes or so, but it's a good read. That's right. And we will link it in the show notes. Cool. Any last words, Mr. Mr. Y? That'll be it until, uh, until next time. Cool. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.